Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, China says it will punish those who offend it as it holds live firing exercises off the coast of Taiwan. This is a highly dangerous trick, such as playing with fire. And those playing with fire will get burnt. What lessons can the UK learn about the role of cyber in the Ukraine war? We will be studying this for a long time to come and we will be already reappraising our approach to cyber as a capability. We speak to the former director of cyber at GCHQ. And what should you do when you see the Navy's new test bed ship? QR codes are painted on the hull so people with a smartphone can take pictures and find out more. China is carrying out live-fire military exercises on sea and in the air around the island of Taiwan after the visit there of a senior U.S. politician, Nancy Pelosi. Taiwan says the exercises effectively blockade the island, which China claims as its territory. Its ambassador to London, Chen Zeguang, gave this warning to America. The USI betrayed its word and broke its commitment. This is a highly dangerous trick, such as playing with fire. And those playing with fire will get burnt. Taiwan says it is preparing for war without seeking war. Hackers have attacked the website of the Taiwan Defence Ministry and suspected drones have flown over the island. Rila Nowens is a China expert at the think tank RUSI. We're talking about uh, live fire exercises, we're talking about um, amphibious landing exercises uh, and simulations, as well as more broadly naval and air exercises. Uh, and of course, missile tests as well, which uh, have been reported to have already started. And when you look at the way that China has reacted, are these tactics that ta- China has been planning for a while? I think reunification with Taiwan uh, and the use of force has never been excluded as an option by the Chinese government. Absolutely in terms of military uh, planning, this will be one of the objectives uh, for the PLA. The planning uh, or at least marking of uh, exclusion zones uh, around Taiwan now is interesting. That's that's a difference from uh, the 1995-96 missile crisis. Um, so coming closer into Taiwan's territorial waters and also encircling Taiwan uh, is another new move that we've seen and most certainly an escalation and a sending of a signal um, that no side of Taiwan is safe. And how could Taiwan defend itself if there were to be a conflict? So this is, of course, you know, not necessarily an easy question. It depends on what the exact nature of that conflict would be and what Taiwan would be responding to. But certainly the use of air defense, the use of naval mines, it would also um, make it more costly for the Chinese if Taiwan invested in greater asymmetric capabilities uh, more generally. So putting the cost really on the Chinese side and holding out as long as possible, waiting for US assistance at the end of the day. And what has America's response been in terms of its military? So far, um, the United States uh, has um, reportedly uh, various ships off uh, Taiwan's eastern coast. 
Um, the USS Ronald Reagan uh, and also Abraham Lincoln were reportedly noted to be in the in the area. And of course, the US also has the seventh fleet in Japan. So there are assets that the US could divert. But I think at the moment, the US is um, staying quite uh, a way away, uh, monitoring obviously very closely uh, and sending diplomatic signals, both uh, one would imagine behind the scenes uh, and also publicly that this is um, a situation that should not escalate further. And is it likely that there will be a conflict one day over Taiwan, as some people believed? One day, um, that could certainly happen. Uh, as I mentioned, the use of force has not been taken off the table by China. Um, but looking at the current situation within China, uh, the domestic, economic and political, uh, and indeed also military goals that the government still needs to achieve, the fact that we have the 20th Party Congress this year, at least in the autumn, makes it very unlikely that China would risk a serious conflict at the moment. And to what extent do you think that this is a defining moment where we might learn the way China is going to respond to what it perceives as threats? It is certainly noteworthy that the location of the exclusionary zones uh, has changed. That, I think, is something to, to monitor very closely, and that could, um, you know, be repeated in future, which is, uh, of course, problematic. The fact that we've seen uh, more incursions over the median line as well, and that, of course, in June, uh, China said that the median line in the Taiwan Strait doesn't exist. Um, those are all deeply problematic uh, evolutions of their approach, which could uh, you know, signal a pattern of behavior um, that seeks to wither away uh, any sort of buffer um, around Taiwan. Um, but I think, again, when it comes to uh, a pattern of behavior, what I think the U.S. and others will be looking at very closely is how integrated um, the air and naval capabilities are on the part of the Chinese. So this is also an opportunity to watch very closely what their coordination activities are like at the moment. Vila Nauen speaking to me earlier. Well, Professor of Defense Studies Michael Clark is with us as usual. Uh, Mike, do you think this blockade is a blueprint for what might happen if there were to be a conflict? Yes, I think this is what the Chinese want to demonstrate, that they've got the capabilities of doing this. I mean, I was looking back at what they did in the last crisis, which was the third uh, Taiwan Strait crisis back in 1996. This is the fourth in the last 60 odd years. And in, back in 1996, they had two blocks of live firing exercises. And one of those two quite small blocks slightly encroached on the Taiwan side of the median line on the straits, the sort of line that goes halfway along the straits between China and Taiwan, which has always been accepted as the, the median line. So one of them slightly encroached upon it. Now they've got six blocks, much bigger ones. They all are on the Taiwan side of the median line. Three of those six blocks are deep inside Taiwanese territorial waters. And two of those six blocks are to the east of Taiwan, 50 and 100 miles away. So they're deep into the Pacific Ocean. And what the Chinese are showing is that they can surround Taiwan and move into its territorial waters and threaten anybody else who tries to come close. That's the what they're trying to demonstrate. And the, the model is that um, we all, we're all assuming that if the Chinese wanted to move to a military takeover, it would start this way. 
they would create a blockade the um the outside world would then react to the blockade the americans presumably would try to reduce it or try to escort taiwanese ships in and out of the blockade and then the chinese could use that as the pretext for saying well it's so unsafe we've now got to occupy the whole island so that's the assumption and just like in the cold war by as it were creating these uh, short notice exercises which they will keep on doing they can keep the west and taiwan switched on as it were they can keep keep everybody on on uh, intention on tenterhooks as to whether this is a drill or whether this will become the beginning of a of a campaign that's what the russians did in the cold war it's what the chinese will probably do for the next 10 years or so and the integrated review on britain's future defense policy talked about a tilt to the indo-pacific how will these events play in the debate about whether it's still right in the light of ukraine well, I think it will play certainly in terms of, well, what do we mean in defence terms about a, a tilt to the Indo-Pacific? I mean, that tilt makes perfect sense in economic and investment terms and in terms of security dialogues. But how much hardware can we actually place in the area? How, how much capacity has the Navy got to support America's demonstrations of keeping freedom of navigation open? I mean, we, we, we collaborate with FONOPS, these freedom of navigation operations, and did so last year when the Queen Elizabeth went through uh, these areas in the South China Sea. Um, we could do that again, but we've got no, as far as I know, we've got no plans to in the short term. So if these crises are going to, as it were, whip up uh, over a, a month or two, but not more than that, it'd be very hard for us to actually react in any militarily meaningful way. Mike, stay with us. To Ukraine now, where the war there is being closely watched by defence forces around the world to see what gives each side an advantage in terms of tactics and weaponry. So what role are cyber attacks playing in the conflict and what are the lessons for the UK? Kira Martin led the National Cyber Security Centre for its first four years. And before that, he was Director General Cyber at GCHQ. He's now Professor of Government at Oxford University. And I asked him what role cyber capabilities have played in the war so far? I think there are two very important ways in which it's contributed to uh, the war. Uh, one is particularly in the early stages, I think you saw some actually reasonably effective Russian operations against Ukrainian military uh, capabilities. In the compromise of the Viasat uh, satellite communications uh, provider, it appears that was well coordinated with Russia's initial ground invasion to try to weaken the Ukrainian ability to communicate. And it wasn't the cyber aspect, if you like, that let down that uh, campaign. It was the wider deficiencies in Russian uh, planning. But then secondly, you've seen contests on both sides and not confined to state actors in the information domain. That's doing things like taking down websites, it's spreading misinformation, it's denying access to information, it's seeking to undermine confidence in each side's leadership and their ability to manage the way of life. So it's a very important, as with information, the information domain in all wars, it's a very important secondary aspect of it. So I think it should over time lead to a, an interesting reappraisal of our approach to cyber capabilities. They're important, they're potent, but they're limited. Um, in my view, they don't really count as primary capabilities, if you like. I don't think you're going to change decisively the outcome of war very often uh, with cyber capabilities. So sometimes they can be overstated, but they're hugely important in terms of both um, the degradation and therefore on your own side, the protection of military capabilities and also in that crucial information domain. So how successful do you think Russia's cyber strategy has been? Well, I think it'll be studied for years. And 
I think at the moment, expert opinion is split. Some people see it as actually quite effective, probably one of the more effective points of a pretty dismally executed uh, campaign. Others see it as perhaps just as, as, as ineffective if their aim is to change Ukrainian hearts and minds, turn them against the regime, either through disinformation or through undermining their confidence in the regime. That doesn't appear to have happened. If you look back, it's nearly six months on now, sadly, but if you look back at some of the discussions in the West at the start of the war about the likely cyber dimension, we were expecting a sort of overwhelming barrage of attacks, not just against Ukraine, but against the West. And we haven't seen that. We haven't seen it for two reasons. One is it's not going to be a decisive game-changing military intervention against Ukraine. And secondly, it's not a standalone capability that you can use against the West without consequence in the way that we sometimes portray it. If Russia decided to do something horrific a la Salisbury again, there would be consequences. If they decided to launch a major cyber attack against the UK, there would be consequences. And so it doesn't exist in in isolation. So I think we will be studying this for a long time to come and we will be already reappraising our approach to cyber as a capability. And as we study this, what are the lessons the UK should take? I think that it behoves us to continue to redouble our efforts to protect critical infrastructure because we've still seen the capability to take down satellite communications infrastructure and before this phase of the war, because of course if you talk to Ukrainians they'll tell you they've been at war with Russia since 2014. We've seen the previous attacks on, on the power grid. I think there's also something about the soft underbelly of our societies. In fact, if if you like in 2022, the year of the war, cyber has perhaps under shot our expectations. In 2021, actually it overshot our expectations in terms of the social harm cyber activity from Russia uh, did. And this wasn't anything to do with the war, This and it wasn't even uh, directed by the state. This was Russian criminality, the so-called ransomware uh, epidemic, all through sort of medium to low sophistication attacks that weren't particularly of the level that you know the Russian uh, state is, is capable of. Now, I think now for reasons of not escalating, those attacks haven't been happening in 2022 but the west showed itself quite vulnerable to those sorts of harassing socially damaging economically disruptive attacks the other point and i think general sanders the um, chief of the general staff made a very interesting uh, speech on this uh, the other point is i think we need to think about what what this means for our own cyber capabilities i believe the uk should be an offensive cyber power the uk is an offensive cyber uh, power but i think we need to be realistic about the capabilities that this gives us it doesn't give us some magic wand that we can use to transform specific military uh, situations it gives us a useful capability but we need to be realistic about it uh, we wanted your response to that speech by the chief of general staff general sir patrick sanders he was talking about the need to be prepared to fight for nato territory now if this battle came we would likely be outnumbered at the point of attack and fighting like hell. Standoff air, maritime or cyber fires are unlikely to dominate on their own. Land will still be the decisive domain. And though I bow to no one in my advocacy for the need for game-changing digital transformation, to put it bluntly, you can't cyber your way across a river. He goes on to say, no single platform, capability or tactic will unlock the problem. Are we putting too much stress on cyber over conventional forces? 
Well, I entirely agree with what General Sanders said, and I think it's one of those occasions where it's not just what is being said, but who's saying it that is significant. As the general himself said, he yields to no one in his appreciation of the transformative power of digital in the military environment. And having worked at a distance with him in, in the past, I would absolutely validate that. I think he's been a tremendous leader and visionary in, in that respect. So it's significant that he's saying that, and he's absolutely right. You can't cyber your way up a river. You can't hold ground with cyber. The Russians are are, are showing that. And I think someone of his um, sort of sophistication and intellect is um, it's very useful that he's, he's, he's putting that out there because whilst he and the other military leaders would not see it in this way, there's been a reasonably lazy subset to the discussion around, for example, the UK's integrated review of March 2021, that there's some sort of trade-off between conventional forces and, and cyber. And they're two quite different things. And there was a famous exchange uh, at a parliamentary committee between Tobias Elwood, the Defence Select Committee Chairman, and the outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, in November of, of last year, where, you know, in effect, the Prime Minister was saying that it was okay to cut the size of the conventional army uh, because we're investing in new modern capabilities. And he listed off a series of high-tech military hardware and mentioned cyber. Now, high-tech military hardware and cyber are two completely different things. A cyber capability is some code, and it depends what you're using it for, and it depends on how you use it, but it's not a weapon in that sense. As we've been discussing, it's a very, very useful capability to have, and it's something you need to defend against. And I'm not trying to be, given we're talking about the outgoing prime minister, I'm not trying to be cakeist and saying you need, you need both. What I'm trying to say is that Public spending is always a trade-off. There's a trade-off between defence and health, museums and galleries and sports and, and what have you. But I would see military sort of cyber capabilities and the size of the army as about as unrelated a sort of set of concepts as you can get. And I'm not competent to say what the right size of the army should be, but I am competent to say that to defend reduction in the size of the army on the basis that you're investing in cyber doesn't make any sense. Obviously, General Sanders can't say that, um, but I think it's very, very interesting that he's saying that well, however excellent you are, and I think the UK should be excellent at digital capabilities, you can't hold ground, you can't cyber your way up a river, and it's very important to remember that. The integrated review into UK defence last year did say China presents the biggest state-based threat to the UK's economic security. How do their cyber capabilities compare with Russia? Well, they're very different. Two important uh, differences. Uh, one is how they use what you would call conventional state-backed hacking. So Russia does it for fundamentally geopolitical and strategic uh, reasons. So it spies a lot. It looks at electoral interference in other countries. It lurks around energy grids so that it can disrupt them as it's done in Kiev. And it looks to um, uh, potentially undermine adversarial uh, militaries and uh, so on. China does some of that certainly spies a lot um, on other uh, countries, but the origins of its cyber attack um, uh, capabilities are economic. It was about part of China's um, economic development strategy, steal IP from other countries, short circuit research and development cycles and so forth. The, the, the second and I think more strategically important difference is around um, the technological base of both countries. So, and this goes well beyond cybersecurity, but it's fundamentally important. And that's why I think the integrated view is right to say that China is the biggest sort of strategic competitor and indeed strategic threat. So Russia is very good at hacking the internet that America built, but that's all it's good at. 
Um, China's building its own internet. It's building its own technological base. It's huge already, and it's competing for leadership. Russia has no basis to compete with the United States for the leadership of technology this century. China does and is, and that competition really, really matters. So those are two quite fundamental differences between the way China and um, uh, Russia approach um, competition in the technosphere, and it's why Virtually every major British security leader is now saying that when it comes to technology, Russia is severe bad weather and China is climate change. Kieran Martin there. Uh, Michael Clark, how does this all play into the debate on the size of the army? Uh, oh, in a way that is, um, uh, as Kieran said, is, is not helpful if you put it in Boris Johnson's terms. I mean, cyber will not get politicians off the hook um, over army numbers. Uh, and we all know that you know, present army numbers, you know, 78,000 drifting down to 72, 73,000 is the wrong number. I mean, people, neither the army nor anyone outside the army can give you a strategic rationale as to why that might be the right number. I don't think it is. Nobody thinks it is. And um, the, whoever becomes prime minister on the 5th of September will have to grip this issue of the size of the army. So far, nobody is committing to increasing the size of the army to meet the new sort of threat. But unless they do that, then the army will be pretty well incapable of doing all the things that General Patrick Sanders knows it may have to do. And cyber, as Kieran said, I, I think it's a bit like um, deterrence in a way, is that, that you know, we know we can't defend ourselves against cyber attacks completely. So we have to threaten to do the same to somebody else. And so, you know, you know that we can do it to you. We know that we are vulnerable. And that stands above anything that the army or the forces themselves have to do. But cyber will never be a substitute for boots on the ground. Mike, stay with us. Now, the Royal Navy has unveiled a unique testbed ship to support trials of the latest tech and autonomous systems. The 42-metre, 270-tonne vessel arrived in Portsmouth and is named after former Royal Navy sailor and Nobel Prize winner Patrick Blackett, as Tim Cooper reports. The band of Her Majesty's Royal Marines marching along North Corner Jetty in Portsmouth Naval Base. Behind them lies alongside the XV Patrick Blackett, and the ceremony is taking place to welcome the ship into the Royal Navy. But how would you describe this vessel? Well, first of all, cast aside all your pre-existing ideas about a Royal Navy ship and what they should look like. This one's painted black and not grey, is small at 42 metres, but much larger than a P2000 class. The bow of the ship is extremely pointed, with the hull sweeping back dramatically on either side. Atop sits a mainly glass bridge giving 360 degree views. Around half of the ship is the rear deck area, which is finished in wood with distinctive mounting points welded in. QR codes are painted on the hull, so people with a smartphone can take pictures and find out more. This is not a fighting ship. XV, rather than HMS, stands for Experimental Vessel, a platform designed to try things out. Quite simply, a floating testbed for the latest innovations, which could make a huge difference to Royal Navy operations. The ship will be run by a part of the senior service called Navy X, whose head is Royal Marine Colonel Tom Ryle. Navy X is the Innovation, Autonomy and Lethality Accelerator for the Royal Navy. Um, and within that, we seek to trial, test and experiment with equipment uh, quickly to see if it's viable or otherwise. Having our own platform like this allows us to really turbocharge that experimentation with our own means uh, under our own steam to deliver output for the Royal Navy. The vessel is spacious and fairly empty on board. That's because the space has been designed in for the equipment. 
If you need to test a server system, say, there's room for it to be plugged straight in. Have a 20-foot container full of experimental sonar gear, for instance? Well, it can bowl straight onto the specially designed deck I mentioned earlier. Think of them as pods, really, with all sorts of different equipment that could be inside. And the ship can hold four of these in total at once. Rear Admiral James Parkin is Director of Future Fleet Capability for the Royal Navy. It's a really exciting moment for the Royal Navy. For centuries, we have prided ourselves on our experimentation, on our innovative approach to bring in new capabilities. We've been doing it since the mid-19th century and earlier. But this is the first time in recent years that we've had a dedicated platform on which to do the experiments that we need to do in order to make the fleet ready to fight in the future. Five Royal Navy personnel will crew this vessel, which will also go on NATO exercises. Colonel Tom Ryle again. The technological development is unrelenting. Um, you can see the battlefield changing on a weekly, if not daily, basis uh, today. So it is about keeping pace with that. Certainly for Navy X, it's about regaining the competitive advantage against any would-be adversary. Uh, and something like this that doesn't fix time of the frontline warships but allows us still to conduct those testing regimes is critical. The vessel's been named after Patrick Blackett, who served in the Royal Navy during the First World War and later won a Nobel Prize for experimental physics. The only former Royal Navy officer to get such an award, Baron Blackett, as he became, worked on cosmic rays, paleomagnetism and cloud chambers. It's hoped his experimental approach will inspire the technical feats the Navy would like this new vessel to come up with. Tim Cooper for SITREP in Portsmouth. This is Sitrep. This week has seen the death of one of the most wanted men on the planet. Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, was killed in a counter-terrorism operation carried out by the CIA in the Afghan capital, Kabul. Toby Harmden is a former Navy officer and author who has written about CIA operations in Afghanistan. The attack that took out just um, al-Zawahiri and apparently none of his family was many, many months uh, in the making. There was a meeting on July the 1st in, in the White House when there was actually a mock-up of the House that was presented to President Biden. But this information had been in the works for many, many months. And what kinds of intelligence would have been used and worked upon to get to this stage? Well, we never know exactly, of course. That's the nature of the CIA and intelligence agencies. But it seems there were Afghan contacts on the ground, and I would suspect some kind of technical intelligence as well. And once they'd established that there was somebody uh, living in, in that house, there was surveillance carried out to establish a pattern of life and to work out uh, al-Zawahiri's uh, movements, and in particular, the key fact that um, he would spend uh, his early morning sitting on a balcony. And the attack was carried out despite the US and UK having left the country. Well, it seems that Zawahiri returned to Afghanistan from Pakistan uh, once US and allied withdrawal had taken place. I mean, what it shows is that there's still a very close connection between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Obviously, President Biden's argument is that uh, it sort of justifies the withdrawal. He talked about over-the-horizon capability, so it's sort of a political win for him, if you like. But the flip side of the coin is that this Taliban government is as connected to al-Qaeda as it was at the time of the 9-11 attacks nearly 21 years ago. And how surprised are you that he, one of the world's most wanted men, was in Kabul? I'm not surprised because uh, after 9-11, or before 9-11, in fact, the, the Taliban was giving sanctuary to al-Qaeda. Um, I'm surprised and somewhat gratified 
that the CIA was able to track him down. I mean, to me, it shows that uh, these intelligence agencies have a very, very long memory. They take these things personally. I mean, Mike Spann, who I wrote about in my book, First Casualty, he was the first American killed by Al-Qaeda after 9-11. That was November 2001. Zawahiri was the the bait, if you like, um, for a meeting with uh, what turned out to be a triple agent in December 2009 that ended up uh, being a suicide bomber, killing seven CIA officers. And the CIA has relentlessly hunted him, uh, really, for, for more than 20 years, and they finally got him. That was Toby Harnden. Uh, Mike, what do you know about the missile that killed the Al-Qaeda leader? There are lots of rumours, not denied by the United States, that it was a, another, it was a Hellfire missile, we know that, and that it might have been one of these um, R9Xs fired from a Predator drone. And the R9X, um, if that's what it was, doesn't carry an explosive charge. It simply carries, they call them ninja blades, these little blades that come out from the missile. And they literally slice through whatever the substance that they hit. And so the idea is that um, unless it hits you, you're very unlikely to be hurt by it. And so there isn't an explosion to to worry about. Um, We don't have confirmation that that was the hellfire that was used. And the Americans are very coy about it because these uh, this was developed in uh, 2015. Uh, They seem to have been used a couple of times, but because they seem very controversial, the Americans don't talk about them very much. But the point is they're very, very accurate. That's the idea, is that they do kill what they hit, um, but they don't kill anybody who isn't uh, directly in, in the line of the missile. And would the UK have been informed about an attack of this nature? I very much doubt it. I mean, it's plausible that the UK intelligence, particularly GCHQ, who work very closely with the National Security Agency in the, in the United States, that they may well have been involved in the early uh, monitoring of uh, signals intelligence and uh, phones and all the rest of it to get an idea of, of um, Zawahiri's family that were moving to Kabul. That was the first big clue in all of this, that his family were in Kabul, so they expected him to follow. So one could, one could imagine there might have been some intelligence cooperation then. But once an operation like the, 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 the operation to kill this, this guy, once that's put into, in, into effect... Um, and the planning for that goes forward. The CIA, just just the way our own system would, keeps it to themselves. They don't share these operations for you know, very obvious reasons. So I doubt we might have known something was in the wind, but I doubt if our people would have known that this was going to take place until after it had happened. Professor Michael Clark, really good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. You can listen to the programme again at bfbs.com slash sitrep or wherever you find your podcasts. We're back with another BFBS sitrep next Thursday where we'll be focusing on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. (laughs) 